Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Is the clicker on there? Okay. So, uh, not too long ago, a staff member jumped in the car with me and said, hey, I need to talk with you about something. Those conversations worry me to death. And I had reason to be worried about this one. Staff member said, hey, I've got this opportunity. I want, I want to think about it. Uh, <laughs> it would be, I would be, I feel like I'm about to be transported somewhere, right? Like a, <laughs> but the opportunity would be uh, in Northern California, and I would be pastor of a church, but also heading up a farm where I would be able to take care of chickens and and." and cows and goats, and uh, there's also an intentional community there that I could shepherd. And so I said, Britt, I don't want to have this conversation. <laughs> but if there was such an opportunity for you out there that was you leading a church, you leading an effort uh, to have an intentional community, and, and you also helping to run a farm, that sounds like God wrote that job description for you. And so uh, I'm excited to announce and heartbroken to announce that Mother's Day will be Aaron and Britt's last Sunday with us before they have this new adventure in Northern California. So uh, where is Britt? Is she, where is she, where, where? I think it'd be appropriate, like they're, they're going to have some time and they'll be able to uh, say some things before they leave. But Britt, would you stand up and let us greet you for all the work that you have been, uh, you have done for us. We have some time, and we have some time not only to find ways to say again thank you to Aaron and, and Britt, but with now we have some time too to, to keep looking for other teammates, and so we would appreciate your praying for us. That is no I'm, we keep teams together. I'm not very good at, at doing this thing, and now um, people have made terrible decisions, and I have to do it a couple of times. <laughs> How is Lent going, everybody? 
I mean, whether you have decided you're going to give up fried food, uh, white bread, chocolate, or maybe you decided to give up that 30 minutes of sleep so that you would get up and either pray or read or exercise. How's it going? Has anybody fallen off the wagon yet? Don't raise your hand and don't point <laughs> at your... If you have, let me, let me encourage you to, again, this is a, a race of endurance. Jump right back up and get started again. If we were just talking about dieting, just because you blow it and have a pizza one night, doesn't mean you have to like completely start over and, or throw your hands up and just quit altogether. Remember, your Lenten observances, and let's call them your Lenten sacrifices, they are not changing God's mind about you. Your Lenten observances aren't uh, reorienting God so that God will finally turn toward you. What they are doing, though, is they are turning you toward God. Everybody see that? I mean, because, as you've already heard today, and help me with this again, uh, God's mind about you is made up, and the news is. I hope you believe that. What your Lenten observances do is they help to kind of bring you under some sense of control so that you can then be oriented toward the God whose face is always turned toward you. We have many dogs at our house, one more than we intended to have. We have many dogs at our house. We have one dog who, uh, according to my little calendar, has a birthday tomorrow. Uh, let me, hopefully this will work. It's this little guy right here. Can you believe this? This little nugget, according to my calendar, turns uh, seven tomorrow. And he looked like that roughly seven years ago. We did not realize at the time uh, that he was part lab and part polar bear. Uh, <laughs> that is one big, heavy dog. Let me tell you something else about Baker. Uh, Baker goes wherever Baker wants to go. You don't walk Baker, Baker kind of walks you, that kind of a thing. And he is, so uh, in dog years, he would be, well, roughly my age, so an, an old-ish dog, let's say, still plenty of life and vitality, and he's still a very dangerous dog, obviously. <laughs> so not super, super old, but, but old enough to not be interested in new tricks, amen? And honestly, and you get a good look at Baker's life, why would he be interested in new tricks? It's working for him pretty well. I mean, uh, he kind of has us trained periodically. Uh, he, he can, he has us trained, like regularly he gets breakfast and, and a treat. He gets uh, peanut butter with medicine in it because he's a little bit overweight. He's a lot overweight, so that's what the medicine's for. He gets the periodic walk. He gets the periodic tug of war, lots of belly rubs. And he, and he actually literally will say, okay, I'm tired. I'm ready to go to bed. And will tell us when he's ready to go to bed and we'll just go to bed. So you can't really teach Baker uh, new tricks these days because he doesn't need any new tricks. The system kind of works for him. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. I'm about to use a word that's going to trigger several of you. And again, if you have complaints, I want you to email Gerard Tashton. <laughs> the systems and the structures at our house are working very well for Baker. Baker doesn't need renewal. It's working for him pretty well. In fact, you could say that Baker is right now enjoying privilege. 
There's the trigger. Privilege works against renewal. If you are enjoying privilege, now this can be consciously, you're consciously enjoying your place, let's say in your company, top dog. And perhaps you are relishing that spot at the top of your company, right? If you are relishing that spot and it is great for you and it's working for you, then are you aching for change? Sometimes uh, the, the privilege thing is more subconscious, meaning we don't sometimes recognize how it is that the systems and the structures are working for us. And I'm particularly interested in those moments, uh, and now I'm testifying, when the privilege is working for me to the exclusion of somebody else. To the exclusion of somebody else. Man, Christians need to be asking that question more often than they're asking it, I would say. <laughs> Christians, because we are the people who love people. Amen? Ooh, that was not good. <laughs> because we are the people who, in a very unique and characteristic way, we are the people who love people. Amen? Amen. Oh, so much better. We need to be constantly asking the question. We need to be diligent and vigilant, lest we sort of slip into a place where we're enjoying privilege, but privilege that happens at the expense of somebody else. Entitlement works against renewal. I mean, I am, I am praying for you, I am praying for me, I am praying for the members of our ministry team, I am praying for all of us that we would have renewal. And as I pray it, I am keenly aware that the Lenten season is a good season to prepare for renewal because it causes us to look in the mirror and ask these kinds of questions. Do I even want renewal? Or is the system working pretty well for me? Do I even want there to be, and you can hear it in the word renewal, right? Right? The middle of that word is new. Do you want or need something new, especially where our life of faith is concerned? And some of us may answer, no, because I like where I'm at. Whoa. That's dangerous. And recognizing that this week, it made me all the more interested in the backstory of this Nicodemus character. Man, Nicodemus had it all, especially as we use this word privilege. I mean, it says it here. This is Nicodemus, who obviously has studied. And there comes some level of privilege with study, and rightly so, rightly so. He is a member of a, of a very powerful movement. The Pharisee movement was a very powerful movement, and he had privilege because of it. And when, then even within that movement, he was a leader. I mean, this was a guy who was neck deep in privilege all the time. This is what makes it so fascinating to me. A guy for whom the systems and the structures were working, a guy who probably was just important enough that when he would walk through a crowded intersection, people would kind of get out of the way. It's like, hey, that's, that's Nicodemus. That's why it fascinates me that he would find something in Jesus. Still, with all of that privilege, there was still something about Jesus that caused him to ache for something more than what he had. 
Again, here are the prayers that I'm praying for myself and that I would suggest would be good prayers for you to pray during this Lenten season. Everybody ready for these? Here they come. God, God, please renew me. God, give me renewal. And then the one that comes alongside of it is just as good. God, man, I wish I wanted renewal. God, renew my mind and heart. May there be something different, something better, something deeper, something more than what I have right now. God, renew me. Take this time. Take all the time you need. But this is a great time during the Lenten season for you to renew me. But if I can't pray that with honesty, the one you can pray with honesty goes like this. God, I wish I wanted that. God, can you help me to want to want that? I am not sure that God forces renewal on anybody. (laughs) I do think, though, there's something about this Jesus. I do think there's something about this Jesus that if given opportunity, this Jesus, even for people who suffer great privilege, even for people who are numbed by great privilege, there is something about this Jesus If you will just listen, if you will just watch, if you will just sit still and let this Jesus meander closer and closer to you, there is something about this Jesus that might even spark the ache for renewal in the most privileged among us. And by the way, that does not have to be a financial term. Do you ache for something more, something new, Maybe you will see today a familiar curiosity in Nicodemus. We have every reason to believe that something happened to Nicodemus in John 3. You know, you know what's coming later in John 3, right? Like the verse. Something good happens to Nicodemus. Jesus is about to describe the love of God in a way that will keep Nicodemus. According to the gospel, Nicodemus is kept even after the horror of the cross. In fact, I would say it like this, Nicodemus, by the time he comes to Jesus, has already started the process of being made new. Let's take a fresh look at Nicodemus. Sometimes we like to portray Nicodemus as someone who came to debate Jesus. I don't think that's true anymore. I think Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he recognizes he has so much to lose, but he can't help himself. He is aching for something more of the little bit that he seems to have already gotten. Is that you? Might there be something here toward the end of John chapter 3? Might there be something here for you, as there was for Nicodemus, that might change the trajectory of your, law, of your life? I need to tell you something, though. That it very well could be, it could be very costly It can be very costly. In what ways, John? Yes, yes. Very costly. And I think it it just might be worth it. So there was this Pharisee named Nicodemus. He was a leader of the Jews. And he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know We know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs, important word in the Gospel of John, 
No one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. This is not an adversary coming to Jesus. This is a fan and perhaps soon a disciple. We know that there is something different about you. We have seen these signs. What signs? Okay, by this time in the gospel, we've already seen Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding. It's very upsetting to Nazarenes, but there it is. We've already seen that. We've already seen Jesus empty the temple. Remember? The money changers. He chased them all out. And they said to him, how dare you? What sign will you give? And then later on in the same chapter, other people were convinced because they see these signs. It says verse 23 in chapter 2. They see the signs that he was doing. So I'm going to read whole chunks of this conversation because I think in reading whole chunks of the conversation to us, it will give us the context that we'll need to perhaps hear John 3.16 for the first time. Now we've all heard it, but we all hear it as if it's an island, right? I mean, haven't you ever seen it done such that whether it's in a frame or it's a a pillow maybe, I don't know what it is, but sometimes there is a whole universe of meaning and theology right there, right there in John 3.16. But I'm telling you, in order to understand John 3.16 the way you were meant to understand it, you have to hear the rest of this conversation. And then, what if today, y'all, you find that John 3.16 doesn't mean what you thought it mean, what, it, what, it, what you thought it meant? What, what if you find out it's even better? What if you find out that it's so good that it's worth even more than you have given to this point financially? No, I mean yourself, I mean your life, your trajectory. Now, remember, we're gonna give Nicodemus the benefit of the doubt here. Jesus says to him very truly, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above, which is kind of a compliment to Nicodemus. So something Nicodemus is already stirring in you, you're seeing something, aren't you, that you didn't see before, and we can already tell that he is seeing more than a lot of the other Pharisees and the teachers of the law who completely rejected Jesus. We can already tell that Nicodemus sees something that they didn't see. But you can also hear the anguish in his voice when he says, what? How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Is that what it's going to take for me to see the reign of God? Do I really have to completely start over God? Now, you can almost hear it in his voice. I've done all of this stuff. I do. I have all of this privilege. I have all of it. People, people know me as I walk through. They do. They get out of my way. I've done so much good study. Are you telling me that that's all now my enemy? And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. No, you don't have to evacuate all of that stuff. But might there be something new? <laughs> might there be something more? Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. Now we're not talking about heaven after you die. We're talking about right here and now, y'all. In other words, some of you are in the kingdom of God right now and some of you aren't. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. 
What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going, because it's everywhere. The Spirit that gives life is everywhere, and you're just now fashioning the eyes to be able to see what you couldn't see before, hear what you couldn't hear before. Nicodemus, again, I think he is still complimented here, but he's still asking the question, verse 9, but how can this be? Nicodemus is hungry. And, and I bet Jesus is like so many of us who are pastors, we like it when people are hungry. <laughs> you can almost hear the desperation in his voice. And it's at this point in the conversation that Jesus will make a turn and begin to reveal to Nicodemus how God goes about being God. And in fact, I pose this question to you now, great church people. How does God go about being God? Here's another way to ask it. What is God's defining characteristic? Now, not the one that you know that I want to hear, because you know which one I want to hear, right? I mean the one that operates and animates and organizes your life and your life of faith. What is God's defining characteristic? What is or what should be the first thought you and I should have about God? What is God up to? And how will God go about it? We're headed toward John 3.16. But, but hear me again. I think we subtract some of the power of John 3.16 when we don't connect it to its context. It is not an island. John 3.16 fits into this conversation between a learned teacher aching for renewal, inspired by something he's seen and heard in Jesus, and then Jesus himself, who we know to be the image of the invisible God. Jesus is going to try to paint a picture of the saving God, and he's gonna do so by using a familiar Old Testament story so for Jesus, the context around John 3.16 is crucial. And I would submit it's crucially important for you and me too. Verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. Lots of language here about going up and going down, being lifted up and taken down. Verse 14, now here it comes. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Do you know the story that Jesus is talking about here? Because it's crucial to our understanding of John 3.16. It comes from Numbers 21. It, it takes place while in the wilderness wanderings. The people of God have been liberated, from Egyptian bondage, and here they are traveling around. God is being uh, the patient and faithful leader of this movement. And I say patient and patient and faithful because the people are trying that patience on a regular basis. At one point they say, we got nothing to eat, God. We got nothing to drink, God. And did you bring us out here to die because we have nothing to drink? And so God finds water for them in a rock finds water for them in a rock, and they drink. 
What about food, God? We don't, we don't have food. And so there is this manna from heaven, this gift from God. And on a daily basis, God cares for the physical needs of God's people. Well, we still have enemies out there. Well, this ragtag group of people actually saw some victories that they had no business seeing because God was on their side. Okay, God, but we don't have meat. I mean, sure, we have water from a rock. We have this manna from the skies. We have military winds. But, you know, we don't have any meat. So you're failing at being God. And so God gives them quail. And still, they said, Moses, Did you and God bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Now, I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. It's very hard for me to tell you this story, but here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, God was so mad that God said, all right, snakes, go bite them and kill them. That's what it says. Venomous snakes then to these ungrateful people within a real threat and a problem. And this is when the people said, we have made a grave mistake. We have taken for granted the love of God. And we have done great damage because we have taken for granted the love of God. Moses, help us here, help us now. So God directs Moses to fashion a bronze snake and to put it up on a pole. The people, having already confessed of their sin, according to Numbers 21, now when they look up at this pole and they see the ramifications of their decisions, when they can see the tangible expression of their sin, then they are healed then they are salvaged, then they are rescued. Even if they got bit, they could look at the serpent of bronze and live. Jesus is referencing this story. I mean, this is a a difficult story, right? I mean, I I won't try to paint any kind of pretty picture for you. This is a difficult, ugly story. But in this story, there is rescue and salvation. Now, the serpent up on this pole here does not represent how angry God gets at serpents. It does not represent somehow a transaction between God and the people of God. The serpent up on this pole represents the damage we do when we lose sight of the love of God and choose ourselves and not God. The serpent up on the pole was a stark reminder of what we do with the grace of God, the damage that we do to ourselves when we neglect and revile the grace of God. Jesus is saying this, y'all. Jesus is saying this, y'all. The cross does that same thing. The cross is not a symbol communicating how angry God is at Jesus or angry God is at us and then takes it out on Jesus. The cross 
mirrors back to us what we do when we reject love and grace. In John 3, 14, Jesus makes reference to a story about people who did not welcome God's grace and gracious provisions. And as the story goes, God punished the people by sending serpents among them whose bite was venomous. They cry out to Moses, confessing their sin, and they beg Moses to implore God to take the serpents away. It is after the people confess their sin that God instructs Moses to construct a serpent, to elevate it, and demand that the people look at it in order not to suffer the consequences of their dissatisfaction with what God had provided. In other words, they had to face, they had to literally turn their faces and look upward at the effects of their sinfulness, the effects of their sinfulness, to look at the consequences of being dissatisfied with the love and the grace of God. That is what's happening in Numbers 21. The people are not looking at the serpent to be convicted of their sins. They are not looking at the serpent to see how God has killed his beloved serpent in order to satisfy God's anger. They are looking at the serpent and seeing themselves, seeing their dissatisfaction with God's provision, the consequences of their own actions. To these people, now repentant, God says to set up a bronze serpent, and the only way they can avoid the consequences of their actions is to face up to their actions. So how do you look at the cross? How do we look at the cross? What do you see when you look at the cross? What does Jesus mean when he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up? Friends, we don't look at Jesus on the cross to see how Jesus appeases God's anger. We don't look to the Jesus on the cross to see that somebody had to pay, so God sent Jesus to do it in our place. The devastated Jesus we see on the cross tells us who we are. We are the people who detest God's gracious provision. We are those who will not abide love in its purest form. We will not tolerate the one who comes not to be served, but to serve. We are the ones who live as if violence is capable of bringing solutions to our brokenness. Isn't that what we demand of God? God, in your violence, heal my brokenness. How does that heal my brokenness? We are the ones who would rather that one should suffer for all than to live with the consequences of our, of our own actions. Yes, looking at the serpent was hard. It, it was how the people of Israel had to face up to their ungratefulness. Looking at the cross Looking at Christ on the cross should be equally hard because it's how we face up to our culture of violence and our willingness to let somebody else suffer so that we don't have to. Just, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, listen to this. For God so loved. Now the so here is not, obviously God loves immensely and hugely, but that's not what this, this word so is doing here. This word so is saying, in the same way. For God so, in the same way, loved the world. Then he allowed this to happen to his son. 
He allowed this to happen to his son, that his son, when lifted up, would reflect back to us what it is that we have the capacity to do to love. But also, in the hopes that anyone who looks up, remember, we face what we've done. Everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal, boundless life. Found this from my my guy that I'm reading a lot this week by the name of Mark Davis. When we hear John 3.14, before we hear John 3.16, we hear this. God loved the world this way, that God sent God's only son whose suffering death shows us who we are, so that by facing up to who we are, we might be transformed to a different way of being. We face up to turn around. Therein lies the gift of eternal life. In other words, Nicodemus, oh, there it is, so that by facing up to who we are, we might be transformed to a different way of being. We face up to turn around. Nicodemus has to behold Jesus lifted up to see not only his own sinfulness, but also to see God's rescue. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved, salvaged, rescued through him. But how? But how? How does God save? How is it that God saves? Does God save by finally making Jesus pay a price that somehow we just aren't ever going to be able to pay. I mean, I I do think there's some of that. But what John 3.16 seems to say is this. We are saved when we can look up and see on the cross what we still have the capacity to do to love. What we still have the capacity to do where the love of God and the grace of God is concerned. What we have in the cross is an opportunity to look up and see this mirror reflecting back to us Here's who you are if you aren't careful, if you don't turn, if you don't move, if you don't change. Here's what you are, here's what you become, and here is the result. Here is the result. But it doesn't have to be that way. The snake lifted up on this pole gave the people a chance to choose against who they had been. And then God does what only God can do, salvages a people who finally recognize, oh, I have this in me. I need to be and do something different. The cross with the broken body of Jesus on it shows us what we have the capacity to do as human beings. But it also shows us We don't have to be this way. We can be something other. We can be something different. We can repent. We can change. We can be different. And then God does what only God can do, brings rescue, salvation. I I feel like there are a lot of people who just want to be broken and allow God to do all the work without taxing me because I really can't change anyway. I want you to think about that for a second. As it has to do 
with your sins, my sins. I mean, what difference does renewal make then, right? I mean, if we really can't be anything other than what we are, then what sense does renewal make? But what if, what if, what if Jesus is telling the truth here? What, what if we are to look at the cross and see what it is that we have the capacity to do to love? What if, given an opportunity to see the horror of the cross, what if then we are granted the capacity to choose against being those kinds of people? What if then God makes God's self available to move us, to move us so that we can be more and more and more Christ-like? What if renewal actually means being something more new, different, but something that is closer and closer and closer to Christ-likeness? Jesus does not believe that you have to be stuck in your sinfulness, do you? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must, must be lifted up. Why must? So that we can see the horror of it all, choose against it, and make room for what it is that God wants to do, the thing that only God can do, which is actually rescue us. But not without you facing what you have the capacity to be or to do. Not without each one of us facing that we have the capacity to be and to do this kind of thing. this vision of God captures Nicodemus. Here's how we know. He's gonna stick up for Jesus here in a few chapters, chapter seven, but then after the death, Nicodemus, at great risk of all of that privilege, goes and volunteers to take the body of Jesus and to minister to the body of Jesus, putting himself in harm's way, risking all that he had worked for. Nicodemus was captured by this vision of God are you? Am I captured by this vision of God that reflects back to us all that we can be while at the same time reflecting back to us all that God can be? This is why we rehearse this story each and every week and if you are helping us to set the table, please come on down. Does everybody know that each and every week this is the story that we rehearse? It is broken body and shed blood. Well, who did the breaking and who did the shedding? I mean, we would say that yes, we have it within us to be the people who can be a whole lot like the people who said on one week, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the next week could scream, crucify him. We, we have it within us to be monsters like that. Thank you, God, for reflecting back to us this reality, this truth. 
But at the same time, at the same time, we are rehearsing each week that God has the capacity to absorb and forgive all that we can be, to return love for anger, grace for wound. We celebrate that this week because that, friends, is our source of hope, the only one that we have, that God will return grace for anger, love for wound. And so God, take these elements, broken body and shed blood, take these elements, God, and with them open our eyes to the reality of grace. That you, knowing all that could happen, that you, knowing us as deeply as you know us, know the ramifications of sending your son, that you still in the aftermath of that kind of horrific scene, that you still choose us and choose to rescue us. So take these elements, broken body and shed blood, and with them, God, give us insight that we didn't have before, give us ears to hear like we couldn't before and eyes to see like we couldn't see before. Help us to consider all that we have heard today and consider the grace and the hope and the life that is found within it. So in a moment, I'm gonna ask you, all of you who want to participate, all are invited, but none are compelled. I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet and exit your pews to the left and to come forward with your hands cupped to receive this grace in tangible form. As you approach somebody holding a plate of bread, that person will take a piece and press it into your hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Then take it. Don't eat it just yet, but dip it into the cup. When you do, that person will say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and then take and eat, and then find a place to pray. If it's gonna be at one of these side padded altars, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for healing, and somebody will meet you there to pray that prayer along with you. It could be for physical, emotional, familial, mental reasons, it doesn't matter if you are wounded, we will pray the prayer of healing for you. Or you can come to one of these mourner's benches up front and we won't ask any questions. You can say whatever you need to say, but we won't assume anything, but we'll let you know that you aren't praying alone or you can circle right back around and pray at your seats. If you'd like to make a special trip up here to remember that you are amongst those who are born of water and the spirit, that's what this water is here to do, to remind you of the moment of your baptism Who is eligible to come, John? Well, all of us, me included, who recognize our need for grace, we are all eligible to come to the table. Yeah, but I had a difficult morning, a difficult week. It's okay. If you recognize you need grace, then this is the place for you. It was on the night he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you, and every time you eat of it, remember me. In the same way, he took the cup and held it up before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, and every time you drink of it, remember me. Remember me. And now all across the sanctuary, if you would, stand to your feet, exit your pews to the left, and come forward to receive these tangible gifts of grace meant to nourish and encourage the people of God.